Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Once again, welcome to everyone joining us online this morning. Can I ask us for the last time in our series called Rooted Hope, our new normal, to open up our Bibles to this letter in the New Testament called First Peter, as we are going to wrap it up today. And he tackles a whole bunch of things in the last part of this letter, but we want to, just for the sake of time, focus in on this one part that I think is going to be so significant to us. And I just want to say that I think throughout this series, God has been so faithful. I just want to glorify him for how he's been speaking and strengthening us through his word, through his spirit. And I just think of this church. I mean, they are pressured and persecuted, forced out of their homes 2,000 years ago by the Emperor Nero, this wave of persecution, and they are put under a type of lockdown away from their homes. They are uprooted. And one of the original followers of Jesus, Peter, he writes this letter to them to strengthen them, to encourage them, to tell them that even in the crazy times that they live in, in Christ, it's still possible to be faithful, to be fruitful, and to be truthful. And I just think of us globally, locally, as a, as a church, as a Christian myself, that in these crazy corona times that we are living in, that God is telling us that we can still be rooted in Him in deep hope, Jesus-focused hope, and that it's Christ's identity that will lead to Christ's activity in crisis. So as we wrap up today, I'm sure that for all of us, you know, this whole COVID graph that we see everywhere, it's on the news, it's on social media, we know it so well by this time. It's etched into our memory. You have, you know, this curve that represents the infection rate, and then you have this line that represents our medical capacity. And then, of course, we know that all these measures, the lockdown and social distancing, they help us to flatten out this curve. But let's be honest, the true story of 2020 is very soon going to be that if we can't figure out how to socially distance ourselves from the refrigerator, we are going to live in hashtag fattening the curve. That's going to be my story for the next many years. And any amens maybe from your couch today for that one. Um, no curves are being flattened in my life at the moment. But uh, jokes aside, I think as we are fighting this physical curve, this infection curve, I think there's another curve that the church desperately needs to deal with. Because it's not a physical infection, it's a spiritual infection. Globally and locally, for all of us, people have been battered in their faith during this time. It's been incredibly difficult. And one of the biggest research firms when it comes to faith and Christianity in the world called the Barna Research Group, they've been just outstanding during this lockdown phase globally to give us up-to-date info on what's going on in the church. And I read one of their recent reports, and I want to tell you it's not rose-colored. And I think it represents well what we are seeing amongst our own people. Listen to what they say. Just a quick thought here. They say 49% of Christians, nearly half of all Christians reported high levels of stress and deep exhaustion and a struggle to connect in their faith in this moment. 35% of pastors and leaders said that they were feeling overwhelmed and deeply lonely and struggling with how to minister to their people in their 
need. And this last one is a shocker. They say one out of every three, one in three practicing Christians with the church being online at this point have stopped attending church during COVID-19. This is devastating. This is bad news. And the question is, what kind of church will flatten this curve? And Peter is going to speak to us powerfully as he ends off. So read with me in verse 8 of chapter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. So Peter says it's clear, and I just want to just highlight two things for us very simply today as we finish off, that a church that flattens the curve is, number one, a church that takes the devil seriously. A church that takes the devil seriously. Why? Because the devil, my friend, has a vision for our church. The devil has a vision for our church. Read with me. He says in verse 8, be sober-minded and alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. This is the third time in this letter you would have picked up where he uses this language of being sober-minded, being alert. Why? Because let's be honest, if you are drunk, it's not that reality itself is changed. It's that your perception of it is not all that accurate. So that very sexy girl at the bar that suddenly looks like there are three of those girls, it's not because there are three of them. It's because your perception has been warped. And Peter, in strong language, is saying, sober up. Stop being drunk when it comes to your enemy. Because he has a plan. And I think there are two ways that we can be drunk spiritually. We don't perceive things as they are when it comes to the devil. And it's these two extremes, both of which I think we have to avoid. The first is that we overemphasize the work of the devil. And the other is that we underemphasize the work of the devil. So the first is if we overemphasize the work of the devil, it means that we see the devil in everything. And so we are constantly anxious and fearful and we're almost a bit paranoid because the devil is in everything. He's behind the government and he's behind, you know, every bad performance review that my boss gives me. He's behind every flat tire. He's behind every overly long red lights, you know, at the, at the robot. He is behind the, the, you know, load shedding schedule. It's all the devil. Get this devil out of my life. But the reality is if we do that, we are giving too much credit to the devil. And we are missing the fact that the Bible does speak to many other things in our life. And so I want to say that for some of us, we are looking at this point at our budget. 
And we're saying, you know, we have to get this devil out of here. You know, we need an exorcist when it comes to our finances. You know, get this devil out of my dollars is what we're saying. And I want to tell us, you don't need an exorcist for your finances. You need a budget. That's what's happening at this point. I want to say that some of our unmarried, you know, young adult couples, you are struggling because you are constantly overstepping your sexual boundaries. And so you're saying, you know, it's the devil that's attacking us and oppressing us. I want to say it's not the devil that's attacking you. It's too much Netflix and chill that is attacking your relationship. Or some of us, our emotional state at the moment We are down and out and we feel it's the devil who's got this diabolical scheme that he's brought down upon your life. And if you you can only find a way to exit him out of your mind, the issue is not the devil. What you need is some good counseling and good friendship and a good sleep and eating schedule. That's what you need. If we see the devil in everything, we are giving him too much credit. But on the other side of the spectrum, we can, instead of overemphasizing the work of the devil, we can underemphasize his work. So instead of seeing him in everything, we see him in nothing. And so our faith becomes almost this, this unspiritual, life-coaching, self-help program where, you know, I, I say I'm a Christian, so I believe in Jesus and I hold on to him. But in my heart, when I think about the idea of an actual enemy in the spiritual realm that opposes me, I kind of laugh about that internally. You know, I, I, I just kind of, you know, turn up my nose to the idea, and I have this picture of this red guy with a pitchfork and, you know, a, a tail with a pointy thing at the end, and you think like that, that's stupid. You know, Christianity is all about making good decisions um, and being a good person and having good habits, And we miss the fact, we become naive to the idea that the enemy actually is opposed to you. He's real and he has a plan. Listen to Peter, he rejects those two extremes and he says it strongly. He says, the enemy, the devil, is not neutral to the church. He's not taking a neutral stance. He hates the church. He opposes the church. He wants to destroy the church. Peter speaks of him as your adversary. Antidikos, that Greek word, it literally means an opponent in a lawsuit, a legal opponent. So if we are sitting down as Dr. Hatfield or in your personal faith, if we're sitting down on this side of the courtroom, the devil is squarely setting himself down on the other side saying, I am here to oppose you. Peter uses this provocative language to, to, to sober us up to the reality. He says, the devil's like a roaring lion. He's prowling. He's looking for opportunities in the, in the circumstances, in our lives, in our church, to devour people, to destroy people, to bring their faith in their church to ruin. And finally, Peter says that this is something the global church should expect. You know, you can say many things about the devil, but at least... He's not a bigot. You know, he is not going to to have a certain liking for churches or not. He is going to oppose everyone equally, Peter said. That is the reality. In other words, friends, listen. He's saying the devil has a vision for Hatfield. He's got a PowerPoint, if you ask him, that he can open up 
with a five-point plan. And almost like a good preacher, he starts each of those with the letter D for devil. His plan is to divide and discourage and distract and deceive and destroy the church. He has a plan. Let's not be naive about that. He wants to ruin your faith. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to ruin the church. He wants to ruin the gospel taking root in Pretoria. And so the Bible gives so many, but just think about John 4 says that he twists the enemy, the truth of God, so that we won't trust him and know him and love him. 2 Corinthians 4 says that he tries to blind us to who God actually is so that we won't find our rest in him and our peace and power in him. Matthew 4 says that he tempts us to to go away from the, the life that God has called us to, to sin, to not act as the sons of God that he's called us to be. And Mark 4 says that he tries to pluck the truth of God from our hearts so that it wouldn't take root and bear fruit in our lives. He opposes us at every single step. So what do you think it is that he wants to do in Hatfield? I want us to think about this and not be naive so that when you have those emotions, if you know what, I just want to check out at the moment. I don't have the emotional energy to to be invested and connected. When you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm growing distant in my faith to God, when you feel like there's a fence you've picked up with a church, when you feel like it's a time to take a break from your rhythms of investing in who God is, when you feel this tension in your marriage, that's this wedge being driven between you, when you see those things, Peter says, don't be naive. The enemy wants to do anything he can to rob you of your faith, to break your marriage, to see that you are not connected to God's people. So what are some of the things that I think is on his PowerPoint for Hatfield? Let me tell you. I think that he doesn't want any of you to be connected to a community group. He wants you to remain on the fringes alone in the church. He doesn't want people around you that will support you and love you and keep you in check and speak truth to you and allow you to do the same. He wants you to be on your own so that he can pick you off. I think he doesn't want any of us to become less comfortable with the idea of church being this product that you consume over the internet. He wants us to grow comfortable with that. So instead of having the attitude of, you know what, this is a season where online is what God has graced us with. We are good to our country and our fellow man when we don't come together in big groups at this point. And so we're going to use the online platform, but we long for the day when we can be back together in physical presence, worshiping, singing, preaching, enjoying fellowship, and instead of having that, you know, I'm committed to the online, but I'm, I've got a longing for the in-person, I'm growing comfortable with, you know what, this is actually so convenient, that church is just a video a couple of times a week, it's just a quick little thing, I don't have to get in my car, it's so nice that this is what church is, instead of it being a family that I belong to, that I fight for, and a mission that I actively go on with people. I think he wants you to feel justified in your mind when you say, I'm just taking a bit of a break from the church because it's such a confusing season. I just, I just need a bit of extra time to figure things out. I think he wants you to feel, yes, I've got you. That's so great. Just, just move further and further into that space. 
I think he wants you to become deeply introspective and just focus on yourself instead of thinking, how can I serve other people? How can I reach out to them? But have all your thoughts just curled back into your own life and your own problems and your own heart. I think he wants you to become overly critical to the people of Hatfield and the church in general so that you would pick up these little offenses, so that static would build up in your heart toward the church. And every time you have this bit of, you know, this, this negative emotion, there's a bit of uh, like a soy brand, as we would say in Afrikaans, in your, in your life about the church, he's saying, yes, I've got you. This is great. This is exactly what I want. Friends, let's not be naive. The enemy wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to ruin this church. He wants to ruin your faith. So a church that flattens the curve is a church that takes the devil seriously. But get this, this is so beautiful. Watch what Peter says here. He says that's the truth, but there's something even greater. Yes, the church that flattens the curve is one that takes the devil seriously. But secondly, he says, it's one that takes God even more seriously. Why? Because God has a better vision for this Church. Read with me verse 10. He says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered. Yes, he's, he's acknowledging it for a little while. To him be dominion forever. He's saying the way that we remain firm. Peter says, You don't have to stand back to the enemy for one moment. We don't have to lose a centimeter to the enemy. Why? Because he has been defeated and disarmed by God on the cross. And so we simply have to stand in our faith. And what is it that we stand on, Peter says? Is it our own devices, our schemes, our plans, our cleverness, you know, all the things that we're doing as a church? No, he says we stand on who God is. Take God so seriously. And stand on God that is what? What God is it that we are standing on, Peter says? Number one, he says, the God of grace. Listen to this, just this superfluous wording. He says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's saying the end has been decided. Eternal glory in Christ for those who've put their faith in Jesus. We are not waiting to one day, you know, float into the clouds and go to heaven, you know, so that we can have this eternal worship service in a disembodied way with baby angels, you know, and we're all wearing diapers and just singing for a living. That's not what he's speaking of. He's saying there will come a day where God will complete his rejoining of heaven and earth. He will recreate the earth. And we will not live in a less embodied existence, but a more embodied, a more real existence where our hobbies and passions and joys and friendships and our vocations are all going to be turned up by a million percent. He says that future is set, that glorious future. But more so, he says, even though that's the future truth, today I want you to hear again that the language that God speaks when he meets our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion and our pain is the language of grace. He's the God of all grace. You see, our world is is almost built upon this mantra of, you know, you get what you deserve. 
And then because of that, very often, you know, we tell people that religion, or that's maybe what we think, when you pick up religion as people would say, it means coming to church because you are ready to now be a good person. And so because of that, you know, people come into the church and they say, okay, I'm ready. And, and the leaders tell them, okay, are you ready to become a good person now? Just, just put the cherry on top of your self-made cake. You know, you can call it religion. And then they say, I'm ready for it. And so what do we say? We say, let's start you with a good diet of doing less of these things, doing more of those things, looking a bit more like this, being a bit more of that. And all it ends up with is then we have this culture in the church of performance and of pretending we're acting with one another because we're trying to keep up this outward appearance. But Peter comes and he says, no, this is not the God that we stand on. This God is the God who in Jesus Christ came to do a finished work on the cross. He didn't come to manage our sin and move it around. He came not to to do a bit of image management. He came to deal with our sin. God steps into history and he meets our depravity and our brokenness and our sin and our disappointment and our hurt and our rebellion. He meets it with grace, unmerited favor and love, undeserved favor and love. We could not earn it. We couldn't accomplish it. We could not work our way into it. God comes to grace us with it. We accept it as a free gift in faith in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the language that God speaks with. And so instead of telling people in the church, listen, let's start you with a good diet of doing and being and, and doing and being and doing and we say, no, from the get-go, we start, as Alan Platt, the global leader of Dr. Day, would say, we start at finish. That's where we start. Jesus cries, our tetelesta on the cross, it is finished. That is where we start when we are Christians in Christ. Listen to the beautiful language of Ephesians 2 verse 4. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He says it's only in Jesus. It's not other religion or program or person. There's nothing that we can do. It's in Christ alone, but him as Lord and Savior, he says, frees us with this avalanche of grace. It's, it's when I realized that this deep well that I discover in my own life of sin and rebellion and brokenness is absorbed in this, this ever deeper well of the grace of God. Imagine a church built on that, on the grace language that God speaks. It would be a church where we don't pretend with one another. We don't image manage ourselves when we get together. We can be open about our struggles. We can be open about our victories because it's not about us. It's about what he has done. We start at finish. You know, I think about many years ago, I was still in youth ministry and this, this young man came to me telling me he's, he's got the struggle with pornography. It's ruining his life. And as we engage and every time I make a suggestion or I try to speak truth into something, he just bats it away. And I realize at the end, he has not discovered grace yet. He is living under the self-imposed religious dogma 
that God is angry, but he's going to fix it. And now just the fact that he has spoken to me, it just kind of soothes his conscience a bit. So he doesn't actually want to experience deep roots of transformation. He just wants to manage it a bit. And I, and I, I contrast that with someone who in this year came to speak to me in the church with the same thing, pornography, but I was so blessed by this person's deep understanding and conviction when it comes to grace. Because they said, yes, this is not of God. This is not part of the path that God has given me. It doesn't honor God. It's not part of the shalom and the grace and the peace of God in my life. I want it to be uprooted. I want it to be taken out. But I speak to you, Joe, because I know I do not have to hide it. I don't have to try and minimize it. I can speak freely because I know it's not about the bad things I have done. And now I've fixed up my life. It's because I came to Jesus with nothing and I hold onto him alone. And therefore, it's his grace that saved me. It's his grace that will heal me. And it's his grace that will bring me through this. And I thought, wow, this is an understanding of who God is. That is the kind of church that flattens the curve. A, a church and a people that builds themselves on the grace of God, the God of grace. But more than that, Peter says, not the, the, the God of grace alone, but the God of sufficiency. That God is sufficient for what we need. He's more than enough. He says he himself will restore and establish and strengthen and support you, yes, even though there is a season of suffering. You know, I think there are three Ps that bring disillusionment to people when it comes to church. And it's the people, the pastors, and the programs. People walk into church and they build their identity on those things. These people are going to restore me. These pastors are going to strengthen me. These programs are going to establish me. And I build myself on them and then they fail me inevitably and I'm broken and I'm disillusioned and I'm offended and I need to go on to the next thing. Why? Because it's this man-focused idea. That the people have to be perfect. The pastors have to be superhuman. The programs have to solve my issues. But I forget the fact that, yes, God uses his people and pastors or leaders and programs only if they then point people to God instead of becoming your God. That's what happens if my identity is found in the people, if my hope is found in the pastor, if my strength is found in how the church does its thing, then it's ultimately just a matter of time before I break apart. But instead of those things being my God, but they actually point me to God, they lead me to God, they channel me to God, then those things become such a blessing because it's not man-focused, it's God-focused. It's Peter saying that God restores, God establishes, God strengthens, God is the one who supports. And when we have a culture like that in Dr. Hatfield, then guess what? People can make mistakes. Pastors can just be normal people. And programs can come and go as they have to because we're not building on them, we're building on God. You know, many years ago, 2011, Shay and I, we were part of another church in Bloom, and then we merged together with Doxedale Bloemfontein, and it was an incredibly difficult season, because for so many of us involved, we realized, we were saying with our mouths, we base our lives on Jesus alone. 
But when it came to all these things changing, I realized that I was actually invested more in certain people. I was actually invested in my identity, was caught up in certain leaders. And I realized just the way that we were doing things, that was the security of my faith. And when those things got shaken, everything fell apart for me. I had to realize that as a church, we cannot build on the people or the pastors or the programs. We have to build on the God who is sufficient. He says, in this season, trust me. Let Hatfield and its people and its leaders and its programs point you and establish you and anchor you to and root you deeply into me because I am sufficient for where you are. Imagine a church flattening the spiritual curve because it's based on the God of sufficiency and finally the God, not just of grace and of sufficiency, but the God of power. He says to him be dominion. That Greek word kratos means power, strength, to the God of strength and power. When I base my life on that, it means that I can genuinely trust God. When someone is, is powerful, I trust them. If I know that God is a God of power, he's not just a God of philosophy or thought or structure. He's not just a mantra that I say in the morning in the mirror. He's not just a set of beliefs. He's not just a historical record, but he is alive and he's powerful. He is the king of the universe. He is the unmoved mover. Then I trust him for healing. I trust him for forgiveness. I trust him for provision. I trust him with my life and more. You know, I think of... This article I read the other day by Life Science, they said they had found this massive colony of ants in northern Germany that had built their nest on this abandoned, um, it was a missile silo, I think. And, and in the end, the, the nest was built over this grate. And so it goes into this long you know, tunnel that goes under the ground. And eventually the grate was rusted away. And so every day, and for season in, season out, as this, this nest would grow, thousands of ants would fall down this big shaft, and they would end up down in this room. And they wouldn't be able to actually climb onto the roof and get out again. So suddenly you have this very strange, you know, call it, I guess, you know, ant colony. But they have no purpose. They have no queen. They can't reproduce. They are purposeless, directionless. And they say about them that these ants are living in a constant state of near starvation. They produce no queens, no males, no offspring, and they have to resort to cannibalism to survive. And I, and I read that and I think this is such a picture of when the power of God is taken out of the church. Because then the church becomes just a bunch of people drinking coffee together and singing songs on a Sunday and reading a book and it becomes just meetings and management and building projects and, and things we're driving. And we forget why. Because the power of God is no longer our foundation and our pursuit. He is no longer the point. And when the church no longer has the power of God, then we are just an organization. <laughs> Probably five, six years ago, there, were, there was all this hullabaloo happening overseas in North America and Britain about these atheist churches, these secular churches who were saying, listen, people who've left the faith, we can have our church. We can, you know, for the sake of community, because the community is great, we can do it without all this God stuff. And it was all the rage. Some of them were called Oasis uh, and, and the God Project. Um, some of them were called the Sunday Assembly. And the funny thing is about a year ago, I read an article where they said that almost all of these churches had now basically collapsed and they've, they've become nothing now. 
And this one author said, as a secular guy, he said the reason for it was simply this. The answer seems to be that a lack of a binding force beyond the desire for community was not present. What is he saying? Simply wanting to be together as people and drink coffee and sing songs and be, you know, loving and supporting, that is not enough. What 2,000 years of history will tell us in the church is that simply the desire for community is not sufficient. You need the power of God in the people, through the people. If you take that away, it's nothing. That's why I love Romans 15, the certainty it says, um, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. If that's our pursuit as a church, we will worship God passionately. We will pray passionately because we are dependent on the power of God. If you're not in our boiler room every Sunday after church, you are missing out because over Zoom, we are making the statement before God, God, we are dependent on your power. We would pray for people's finances. We would pray for healing. We would pray that God, Friends, none of us thought three weeks after our launch as a church that we would be in this mess. But we are not looking to the structures alone. We're not looking to planning alone. We're not looking to ingenuity and technology alone. We are looking to the power of God. A church that flattens the curve is a church that's built on the grace of God, the sufficiency of God and the power of God. God. And as we just close this series, I think of Peter, who, I mean, he's a, he was a rough guy all the way through. He was a rough-edged individual. He's not like a Paul, this well-spoken, almost like poetic-like academic. He's a rough diamond. He's a fisherman. And the first time that Jesus spoke to them about going to the cross, I think it's in Mark 8, you know, Peter was so upset because he thought Jesus was going to be a Jewish leader. And so he takes Jesus aside and says, you can't speak about this, this cross stuff, this suffering stuff, this death stuff. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you do not understand what God is doing. That's rough. Why? Because Jesus did not come to start a church that's just all about songs and gatherings and buildings. He came to start a church that's full of the grace, full of the sufficiency and the power. And that's why Peter, later when uh, the officials are so scared of this Christian movement rising up in love and truth and grace, they pull them before the officials. And it says, when they observed the boldness of Peter, he was a changed man. This man who rebuked Jesus for going to the cross. This man who abandoned Jesus just before the cross. This man who so often put his foot in his mouth, he was transformed by the grace and the sufficiency and the power of God. And it says, when they saw their boldness, they were They realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, but what? They were amazed because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Can we be a church in this season? It says, yes, we take the devil seriously, but we take Jesus more seriously. We are a people with him. And his sufficiency and his power and his grace will not just bring us through the season, but it will see us rise up in this season, rooted in hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray as we close out our series today that every single person in Dr. Hatfield would be rooted in your grace and your sufficiency and in your power. May we be people.
people known, not for our programs or our pastors or even who we are, but that we had been with Jesus. We are with Jesus and we will continue to pursue Jesus. In your name, amen.